Welcome to Boston Venue, the channel podcast. This is the true and complete story of the legendary Boston music club, The Channel. From its shaky launch in one of Boston's grittiest neighborhoods, through the glory years of beer-soaked rock, punk, and reggae shows, from an incredible roster of artists, and its demise at the hands of local mobsters after a spectacular run. A demise that ultimately led to a murder that would take 25 years to solve. This podcast includes explicit language and violent episodes. No sugarcoating and no bullshit. Let's rock. On the last episode, The Kids Will Have Their Say, we looked at the revolutionary world of hardcore punk and its history at the channel from the perspective of performers, managers, promoters, and fans alike. Both the players and audience were angry, and that anger was articulated by very loud playing and harsh, often explicit lyrics. Black music, defined loosely as music with roots in Africa, was multidimensional. Some genres had an angry vibe, while others promoted love, peace, and unity. From the beginning, black music was a major part of the channel's programming. An article in the Boston Phoenix in January 1980 by Michael Matza and Kit Rackless reads in part, quote, Since 1975, out of 600 concerts in the Boston area, excluding jazz, fewer than 40 have had black headliners. Boston was pretty much off limits for most national black acts. Boston had a reputation of being one of the most inhospitable markets in the country for black music. Black acts couldn't identify and expand their audience here the way their white counterparts could. Progression from clubs to concert halls to arenas was not possible for them. So, when black acts came in, they already had to be major stars and there were not that many black acts that could fill the garden at the time. There were simply no opportunities to develop black acts during this time. End quote. As a result of this racial divide, the channel found itself in the position of having a good selection of headliners, but there were definite challenges. So our location in South Boston made any racially diverse shows potentially problematic. Southie had a history of racial intolerance. So when we first started booking some black shows, many of the residents uh, responded with uh, sometimes with shock, uh, sometimes they were threatening, like uh, you better not do any of those shows in Boston or else. So obviously it was a challenge trying to get black audiences to come to a dark, desolate location in South Boston at night. We'd hear horror stories from longtime liquor salesmen who told us that many black shows did not end well in Boston, mostly because of racial tensions. Everyone from local politicians to cops to local agents and promoters warned that it was very risky bringing black music to South Boston, but the team all felt the risk was worth it. I was never too worried about that. I figured we could take care of just about any situation that came up. We made a major outreach trying to book, you know, world beat and reggae shows, especially reggae shows 
into the channel, local, national, even international acts. Local music continued to play an important role in the channel's bookings, and reggae was well represented with strong bands including the I-Tones, One Nation, and Zion Initation, a local roots reggae band that was a regular at the channel, fronted by lead vocalist and creative force, Danny Tucker. For where it was coming into Boston in the 70s, I would not have found it because crossing 93 was not something me from Jamaica wanted to do back in the days. So the fact that it was over South Boston was letting it hard to to access. I played the channel for the first time. I was opening up for Gregory Heiser. Zion Annotation it was. The night when the space shuttle blew up, we were actually performing at the channel that night. I've played with musicians like Ras Iper, Abdul Barki, played with Joseph Hill Culture, Bob Marley, Peter Tosh. At the channel, I opened up for Yellow Man, Bob's wife, Wita Marley, when she came there, Burning Spear. We were pretty much the opening band for the channel. Despite how weird it was, one of the only places I could go to in Boston and find black people and white people, all kinds of people dancing and enjoying the music. When you get out in the parking lot, everyone was cordial. So I've never had a problem there. As a matter of fact, it was the place that bring unity to the people. So at that time, I had very little knowledge about black music other than the crossover stuff, Ray Charles, James Brown, the Supremes, maybe Bob Marley. My knowledge was very uh, limited until I met the Black Star Liner. Kevin Aylmer, also known as the Black Star Liner, is a world music scholar and was the house DJ for most reggae and world beat shows at the channel. He talks about the roots of black music. So when we talk about the roots of black music. The beginnings of this African music, where humanity originated, in seasonal celebrations, honoring the gods, tribal community, and work activity. Over the course of time, there is the introduction of rhythm patterns, legends, different African languages, and especially the use of the drum, which was central to these common rights of these different tribes all throughout Africa. But I would say that it was percussion, the drum, besides the human voice, which really distinguishes the music that originally came out of Africa. The channel's first reggae booking was Ross Carby, a star in Jamaica, but pretty much unknown here. It was disappointing. Fewer than 100 people attended on a weeknight. There would be many more to follow. So we saw that reggae and world beat music had a lot of potential in Boston. It was uh, underrepresented in the live music stages. So we made a major effort to book those bands, and we try to go after everybody. One of the artists that really caught our uh, eye was an original whaler. In 1963, Hubert Winston, Peter McIntosh, a self-taught guitarist, met Robert, Bob Marley, and Neville Livingston, and formed the Whalers. Over the years, Dozens of musicians performed under the Whaler's name, but the originators remain Bob Marley, Bunny Livingston Whaler, and Peter Tosh. 
Tosh's 1982 album, Mama Africa, his most successful album in terms of sales and critical acclaim, articulates his deep attachment to the roots of his ancestral continent and his belief that Jamaican reggae music was the root of all music. I first met Peter Tosh in Jamaica in 1982. I went up to his house in the hills of Kingston and we talked about the possibility of him coming to Boston and playing the channel. So about a year later, we ended up hiring him to play in Boston, but he didn't want to play in a nightclub. His agent thought he was too big for a nightclub, so we had to find an alternative venue. So we booked him at the Park Plaza Castle, a big structure in the heart of Boston in Park Square, capacity about 2,700. We promoted him there. It was a successful show, sold out. You know, we began to talk to Peter again. Kevin Aylmer, uh, the aforementioned Black Star Line, I was writing a book about Marcus Garvey, a Jamaican hero. He wanted an interview with Peter Tosh. I saw an opportunity to maybe do some business with him and get him back into Boston. So we opened up a line of communication and we spoke to him after the concert and a couple of times after that at his apartment in the Upper East Side of New York. Peter McIntosh, that people know today as Peter Tosh, was one of the original the trio called the Whalers, which started as a larger group. There were four or five different members, but eventually are known as the Whalers, Bunny, Peter, and Bob. Peter grew up in challenging circumstances in Kingston, Jamaica. Peter was known for his guitar ability. In fact, he maintains that he taught Bob Marley how to play the guitar. He was a champion of what he called heartbeat music. And it was his contention that it was at the foundation of all music coming out of Africa, and therefore the world. He was combative, he was argumentative, he was beaten up by the police because he was a champion of herbal medicine. At the time of the 80s when the channel was involved with Peter, he was producing an album called Mama Africa, which he paid obeisance to Africa as being such a creative force in his life. He spoke out against corruption, about equal rights and justice, and that to see yourself as an African and not a particular ethnicity, that we're all Africans, and that the ultimate goal of humanity is to free your mind and to love your brothers and sisters in a situation called liberty, what the late Dr. Martin Luther King called the beloved community. On a dark late November afternoon in 1986, Kevin and Harry arrived in New York after about a four-hour drive, walked into an Upper East Side brownstone, and up three flights to a small apartment where the Bush doctor himself and his wife Marlene were expecting them. So we walked into the apartment. Peter and Marlene greeted us. Marlene was sitting in a desk, you know, with a big pile of Jamaican herbs in front of her. She was cutting them up and grinding them in a small coffee grinder. She had rolled a couple of large uh, spliffs in uh, tobacco leaves. You know, in the air, there was a distinctive aroma, you know, in the smoky haze. And there was Peter Tosh sitting in a small couch, a big acoustic guitar, and strumming away, inviting us to start the interview. <laughs> Peter talks about his views on music in general, reggae, and the racial divide in the music business.
music that I play is the foundation of all music. See, every music that you hear on creation can be played in reggae. That's why it's the root. Yeah, man. And you see, my music is not for individual or specific people. It's universal. I want my music to be played in Russia. You see, and I want it to be played in China, in Japan, and everywhere. Yeah, man. I will exalt his name. In the music business here now, it's a slavish attitude. All record companies are controlled by multi-corporation. I was getting involved with damages instead of managers, see? And my advisors instead of advisors, see? So I had to get rid of them because I realized that they weren't working in the best of my interests. I have the pirate record company on the left and the pirated lawyer on the right. So when I get a pirated lawyer and tell him of my situation that I have and the problems that are, I am in, and I tell him about a record company, the pirate call another pirate and them sit down and talk and drink two champagne and sing and make great promises and say, if we can hold this, you know, what they want compare right to in the middle here, everything would be fine. And when the record company is doing everything to create a conflict between me and the people, these things get me very rascal mad. Sometimes I feel like I would punch down any guy I see come from EMI. I am not the drum and bass reggae player. The music that plays in me, bigger than that, is like 400 different instruments syncopating together to create that individual sound, yes. But with that bass bottom, heavy, not just top and middle. I mean, and a symphony on top. I can play music greater than any rascal band that they can put on. I can play beside any artist, any top artist in the world, anywhere. The reason why I sang a song called Don't care where you come from as long as you're a black man here in Africa is because the people in Trinidad think they are better than the people in Jamaica. So does the people in Jamaica think they are better than the people in Bermuda. And the people in Bermuda think they are better than the people in St. Grenada. It's the general shits and the people think they are in New York think they are better than the people come from you know, Miami or anywhere. Seeing there is still some prejudicial attitude and some mentality that was forced upon our people because of slavery. See, the reason for this is the general strategy of divide and rule. So, Harry, we have to ask, when you visited his apartment, how was the herb? We went into Peter's house, and there was a distinctive smell of marijuana everywhere, but we didn't really get to sample anything. As a matter of fact, before we left, we had scored a little bit of sensimeon that we'd gotten from the skunk posse from western Massachusetts, and it was some real high-quality so-called skunky. You know, we figured we'd bring it to Peter as a tribute. So we had to put it in like three bags because the stuff smelled like skunks. If you were like a block away, you could smell it. So we brought it to Peter. You know, Kevin and I tested it for purity before we packed it up for Peter and you know decided that it was pure enough. So we brought it with us. And when we got to uh, Peter's apartment, you know, Kevin said to Peter, "Peter, we have some 
really good sense of me and you know that we got from Boston you know we'd like you to try it and see what you think Peter looks at it and takes it sniffs it throws it over to Marlena and he says all herb is good herb man so Marlena just kind of tosses it on top of the pile chops it up puts it in the grinder and that golden uh, nugget over there just kind of disappeared into that big pile of Jamaican herb Harry and Kevin's last interview with Peter occurred four months to the day before he died at his home in the neighborhood known as Barbican, in the hills overlooking Kingston, Jamaica, where on September 11, 1987, he and two friends were brutally murdered, and his wife Marlene was wounded, but survived by playing dead. At the time of his death in September of 1987, we were in the process of putting together an East Coast tour with a band he was putting together, in support of an album that was being planned for that time. Over the years, the tension with the neighbors eased and world beat music with distinctively African roots became regular headline fare, often drawing sellout crowds of people of many cultures and notice from traditional rock and rollers. Chachi Lepret, longtime promotions coordinator at WBCN, talks about his introduction to world music. I do recall in 1985 getting a call from David Alexander. David worked at the promotions and advertising department at the channel. The BCN was a very diverse radio station. The DJs had a lot of liberties to play whatever they wanted. He called me about an artist that was coming into the channel. The type of music was Juju music, and his name was King Sonny Ade, something new, kind of different. I distinctly remember promoting the show, and I remember going to the channel because King Sunny Day is going to be pulling up. And so I've pictured a giant limousine. Celebrities drove in limousines back in those days. Nowadays, it's SUVs. I'm standing there waiting for King Sunny Day to pull up, and this like little Toyota pulls up, and the back door opens and out steps King Sunny Day. The diversity of the club was truly amazing. They knocked down some barriers in the city. At that time, we all knew there were certain areas of Boston that you couldn't go to. And the area where the channel was in was pretty uh, abandoned, kind of deserted. So the channel was exciting because it not only broke barriers within the four walls, but it certainly did within the city itself. All different kinds of people to see music that just crossed all boundaries. As I look back, that was exactly what King Sunny Ade was all about, breaking down the barriers. And I remember it was a really diverse audience, whites, blacks, everybody enjoying King Sunny Ade and Juju music. So it was pretty exciting, and that's part of what is so great about the channel. And pretty amazing thing. It was a, it was an exciting time to be aware of what was going on at the channel. It was a great time. Like hardcore punk, hip-hop had plenty to say about American life. Emerging from African oral traditions and Jamaican dub poetry and sound system mastery, hip-hop music and rap became a rallying call for pissed-off inner-city youth to get their message out, sometimes in terms not easy to hear. But the genre was nothing if not diverse, from the war on cops and misogyny to positive affirmations and serious social commentary. Rappers always had something to say. Yeah. Yeah. The sidewalk's on with the pan taking. He 
said the road less traveled is for the humble and patient. He said the road carries risks and many broken bridges. It's lined with barbed wire, not some pretty picket fences. And the feet didn't tread over me, no, this focus for roses. And you get these cockroaches and vultures that are supposed to eat you in the culture to feed you on your knees, screaming, please do. So y'all, we seem tall, then we all meet God, and we seem small till we meet these brides. Peter Tosh had his own thoughts about rap music. Rap music, I know rappers are rappers and they must be recognized for what the work they do. It started in Jamaica where you have a lot of guys, they call them DJ. They get the opportunity to, to say something on a rhythm, but they don't take the time out to create something constructive. That when it is being said, it is worthwhile listening, see, for moral reasons. And you see, because there is so much immorality, because as long as you start to divert in the immoral sector, you're going into destruction. And as long as a rapper is rapping something spiritual, moral, educational, it's worthwhile. I love that. The Encyclopedia Britannica traces the origin of hip-hop. Quote, there are various explanations for the source of the term hip-hop. However, the most popular one involves Keith Keith Cowboy Wiggins, a member of the rap group Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. The rapper used the words hip, hop, hip, hop, imitating the sound of soldiers marching, in reference to a friend who had joined the army. According to some accounts, Kevin Lovebug Starsky Smith was with Wiggins and helped create the phrase. Hip-hop was subsequently popularized in songs, notably the Sugar Hill Gang's Rapper's Delight. Other African-American music genres like R&B, funk, and blues were further removed from their roots than rap that stayed closer to its African tradition. So just like world beat music, hip-hop was starting to cross into uh, the mainstream. And at the very beginning, we were able to feature some uh, what are now considered pioneers of hip-hop music, you know, acts like uh, Africa Bombarda, Grandmaster Flash, and the Furious Five and uh, the Sugar Hill Gang, among others. The following quote is on display at the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. Quote, In the early days of hip-hop, pioneer DJs such as King Tubby, Cool Herc, Grand Wizard Theodore, and Grandmaster Flash developed new methods to play music on turntables. When DJs such as Grandmaster Kaz stepped from behind their equipment with a microphone, the hip-hop MC was born. Rapping became an integral part of hip-hop music and culture, combining poetry and spoken words with innovative new sounds. Hip-hop grew into a vehicle for MCs to speak their minds about the cultural, social, and political happenings of the time. End quote. It was a while before we were accepted as a proper venue for hip-hop music. At the beginning, the, the shows were challenging. You know, low attendance, difficult in promoting because uh, very few stations played hip-hop music, just a couple of college radio stations. And at the beginning, we did have security issues. But we stuck with it. After a while, we found that we could, you know, use some commercial media, rock and roll media, to promote our shows by mixing it up a little bit. So we often paired hip-hop shows with rock and roll bands. One show that comes to mind is we use the New Models, a local power pop trio, kind of a new wave uh, Boston band, 
and they opened up for new uh, for Run DMC, and it was a successful show, and uh, the crowd was very mixed, and uh, we were able to successfully promote it by using more traditional rock and roll media. Rick Anderson was program director at WILD Radio in Boston, an urban station that mostly played R&B, blues, and jazz. I was at College Radio at Northeastern University, WRBB, student-run, community-based, 10-watt radio station that uh, kind of excelled at competing with a lot of the pros in the area. Considered ourselves a progressive radio station, which speaks to breaking records. We would be very open to new music. African Bombarda did that song, Planet Rock. When the record reps came in, they would come in and say, listen, this song is hot, it's blowing up all over the place, you really need to get on this. We were the first to play Planet Rock in the entire United States of America. And once we found that out, we started breaking records like crazy. When the professional stations like uh, ILD and KISS, when they jumped on those songs, we backed off them and we looked for another song to move up the charts. There was no time limit. There were no commercials. But when you go to the pros, you have money on the line. So the commercials have to be played. If we're speaking to rap and WILD, the owner, Ken Nash, he was rather cautious. It's something new, something that wasn't understood. He was a lot older than us. He would not allow us to take chances with his money, his baby. He didn't want to lose sponsors, clients, so he could not be persuaded. With the advent of rap, Growing, you had no choice but to accept it. So a show was created after regular programming for about an hour or two before we, the station shut down because it was a daytime station. It was called Studio 109. You would hear a little bit more rap, and it was still sanctioned in terms of who was played and what was played. The channel broke quite a few acts. I mean, they were really an alternative club for a lot of the urban acts. It came out of Boston, Ed O.G. and the Bulldogs and RSO and Gangstar. Eventually, hip-hop music began to moderate. The anger became uh, less apparent. Bands began to cross over. Groups like Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch, DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, a.k.a. Will Smith, began to make inroads in rock and roll airplay. Bands like Salt and Pepper with Spinderella, who eventually won a Grammy Award. I mean, these groups were easy sellouts, even on a weeknight. Dart Adams is a local hip-hop historian and talks about the hip-hop scene in Boston in the 80s. Boston is a small city, so everybody ran sort of in the same circles, even though it seems like different genres, nobody knew each other. I mean, one of the first real recordings of Boston rap was on um, Boston Goes Deaf, which was recorded by um, Steve Mr. Beautiful of Beautiful Sounds, and he was a rock guy. The second ever rap radio show in the nation was actually at what we now know as WNBR 88.1. It was called The Ghetto, and basically what it did was it covered all the new rap singles. So you have a bunch of Boston groups that didn't have many other places they could perform. You could go to the Matter Hunt, you could go to the Lee School, but you could only do so much in small venues. And the channel was a professional venue with professional sound, so it was a completely different experience to go to a show. And if you're a national act and you're touring and you want to do a show in Boston at the time, institutional racism prevented you from performing in um, the Boston Garden, a venue like the channel, which embraced underground music like punk or hardcore. This is where the guys, this is where rappers would end up performing. 
But it wasn't always peace and racial harmony. Boston was not quite ready to accept the extreme fringes of gangster rap that were getting popular with artists like Ice-T, who drew protests from the local police department for his anti-police messages. There were also some confrontations between Southie neighbors and Roxbury rappers. Peter Boris remembers some of those tense moments early on. Well, I kind of knew what to expect, you know, because, you know, growing up in the inner city, watch them come in, you know, they've got the gold chains and the bracelets and navy blue sweatpants with a white uh, Nike, you know, logo on the jacket and the white sneakers. They looked good. And they came in and they felt like they were entitled to be there. Then they'd congregate in different parts of the club. The attitude that they had was, don't fuck with me. It was kind of challenging for our security because the security that we have were from the area, Southie, Dorchester, Hyde Park, and they were there to do a job. And they would keep the security level at best, you know, in the club. They weren't going to get intimidated by hip-hoppers. It was confrontational on both ends. Our guys were there to maintain security. The hip-hoppers were there to have fun and to impress their girlfriends. After a problematic night with the confrontations and the uh, standoffs and everything else, yeah, we did talk about, fuck that rap, you know, why should we even get involved in that, you know, they're stiffing anyway. But then, as the avails came in for different acts, we took care of the problems. We weren't going to let anything stand in the way of the way we were bringing acts in. We did it. Whatever had to be done, we did it. Before we knew it, during a reggae show, you'd get hip-hop people, and during a hip-hop show, you'd get reggae people. <laughs> so it was good. And then there was the biggest rap show that never happened. It was the controversial group Two Live Crew who were scheduled to play at the channel in 1990. Even after 10 years in business, we were still having problems with the locals about black shows in South Boston. So we booked Two Live Crew. It was on a Sunday afternoon. The show wasn't really doing much until some local politician decided that this was a show that should not happen in South Boston. Went to City Hall and uh, raised a formal protest with a licensing board asking that the show be moved from South Boston into the combat zone. So the show started selling like crazy as soon as the story hit the local newspapers. The Boston Licensing Board, also sometimes referred to as the city censors, called the channel management to a hearing before the panel. To me, it was a civil rights as well as a free speech issue. So we found young civil rights attorney, Flash Wiley, and he put forth a very compelling argument to City Hall. My position was there were a lot of white rock and roll bands that made liberal use of obscenities, profanity, misogyny, and violence in their shows at the Orpheum, even at the Channel. I never saw them banned in Boston. To the city, it was a public safety issue. The licensing board, on the recommendation of the Boston police, greenlighted the concert with some pretty tight restrictions, including making the channel hire 12 uniformed police officers at a whopping cost of almost three grand, payable in advance. The show was canceled just 24 hours before the scheduled performance. In a 1990 interview with WGBH-TV, Harry was asked by the host, John Hashimoto, what had happened. The first reason the management gave for the last-minute cancellation was that Luther Campbell, the lead rapper, had a sore throat. Harry Boris has seen acts like Two Live Crew come and go before, 
Earlier today, he was saying the whole controversy was much ado about nothing. Graphic language is part of rock and roll, especially live rock and roll. None of this is the result of political pressure, but what? Um, business. Business. Yeah. The sign walks on with the pan taken. He said the road less traveled is for the humble and patient. He said the road carries risks and many broken bridges. It's lined with barbed wire, not some pretty picket fences. musical genres arising from Africa, none have had a bigger impact on American music culture than the blues. So blues was an important part of the channel's early success. We got avails and often booked some pretty amazing blues acts, acts that would normally play a much bigger venue, you know, from uh, the Delta Blues of John Lee Hooker to the Chicago sounds of B.B. King, Coco Taylor, Buddy Guy, you know, Robert Cray, I mean, you know, they all came through the channel. And there were plenty of blues bands right in Boston that uh, used to do really well. You know, uh, bands like uh, Room Full of Blues, James Montgomery, and of course the mighty, mighty Baron Whitfield and the Savages. We got together, did the Georgia slop. Big leg knees are knocking out. Whitfield and the Savages became a local favorite. Barron's remembers some good times. It was just roots music. We were doing a little bit of garage, a little bit of rock and roll from the 50s, R&B, dirty soul music, and fusing it into something of a fireball. I think the first gig we did at the channel, we played with Fabulous Thunderbird, Memphis Rockabilly, and from that day, I think the whole site of who Barons with the Savages came into view. We had played University of New Hampshire. Most locals saw us there and did my act of flying around in the air. At the end of our set, they came over to go, what are you doing uh, tonight? And I go, well, not much. What's happening? Well, we're playing at the channel. We'd like you to come down and uh, jam with us. So I went down to the channel and they saw me and they said, Ladies and gentlemen, we just met a good friend, and we just want to have him come up and jam us. That happened in 1985, and we're almost 35 years. I do it every time they show up to Boston. The channel always had its own mystique. It's in an area that was kind of funky anyway, but I think after a while, people kind of knew what they were going to. They kind of were able to ignore that and just go and have a good time. The music that was coming down there, whether it be national acts or local acts, was a very, very special venue where not only did I meet a lot of great musicians there, I met a lot of friends who to this day will always say, man, I used to see you at the channels. Funk music evolved 
like rock and roll from the same roots, soul, jazz, and especially rhythm and blues. James Brown defined funk in the mid-60s with a unique downbeat groove that became wildly popular with other artists like Sly and the Family Stone, Parliament Funkadelic, and Rick James. So even though funk acts uh, were potentially profitable because we saw that the audience was there, doing some of those shows was risky, considering that uh, some of the earlier funk shows in the Boston area didn't go so well. In the previously mentioned Phoenix article from January 1980, it was reported that two funk shows in the Boston area erupted in violence. Parliament Funkadelic, or P-Funk, at the North Shore Coliseum in Danvers resulted in an unruly, overcapacity crowd. Rick James at the Orpheum, gate crashers battled police, many injuries and arrests. Rick was pretty much told that he is no longer welcome in Boston. Let's just say we're a little nervous about bringing Rick James back to Boston where he was banned years earlier, not only to Boston, but to our club in South Boston in 1988. A review in the Boston Globe by Jim Sullivan of Rick James, dated August 27, 1988, reads in part, quote, All in all, the show was a letdown, and it was not a stellar set, in spite of the fact that it was a second of two sold-out shows. The first half of the show was ballad-heavy and dull. The best song was Party All the Time, which he wrote for his best friend, Eddie Murphy, but it was still marred. He did not bring a sense of conviction to his lyrics, and the song was cut short. The second half of the show was funkier and more lively, but sloppy. High-energy music, but just halfway there. Musical mediocrity. End quote. Cosmo Macera was also there that night on the channel security staff, and has another take. There was a two-night engagement with Rick James, and it was absolutely rock-solid, jam-packed. It was hot as heck. And I'm walking around, circulating throughout the crowd, and I look over, and at the side of the, of the room, there's Reggie Lewis. Now, remember, this is August 19, 1988. He was the number one pick for the Boston Celtics in 1987, not soon after the terrible tragedy with the death of an earlier top pick, Len Bias. And I'm like, wow. He sees me. He goes, hey, will you open this door? It's so hot. I'm like, I go, you're Reggie Lewis. Of course I'll open the door. And I open the door to get to Mayor, and he, he walked out, and, and he got some fresh air. And we talked for a couple of minutes, just small talk. But what do you say? to the number one pick for the Boston Celtics. I'm really excited. It's great to meet you. Enjoy the show. I'm really excited about you being part of the team, and good luck and congratulations and all the other stuff. But it was pretty cool. That's a long time ago. That's 30-plus years. That's one of the little moments of working at the channel that stuck with me, and I remember to this day, and will probably remember forever, that night. From the spiritual rhythmic traditions of Africa to slaves and sharecroppers' fieldworking songs, Black music developed and evolved in America to spawn much of the popular music that has dominated American culture for centuries and influenced most popular genres, including jazz, gospel, R&B, soul, funk, hip-hop, and of course, rock and roll. On 
on the next episode of Boston Venue, The Channel Story. We're joined by hometown hero and multi-Grammy award-winning producer, musician, songwriter, and regular channel headliner, Tom Hambridge, for an up-close look back at some unforgettable nights with legendary artists, including Roy Orbison, Bo Diddley, Stevie Ray Vaughan, and more. Meanwhile, as the channel is experiencing its glory days, there are darkening clouds on the horizon. Hidden forces and tricky business complications are presenting the team with some formidable challenges. Music featured in this episode by Danny Tucker in Boston Roots Reggae and Zion Nation by Barron's Whitfield. Intro music, John Butcher Axis. Contributing storytellers, Kevin Almer, Peter Tosh, Chachi LaPrette, Rick Anderson, Dart Adams, Peter Boris, Danny Tucker, Barron's Whitfield, and Cosmo Macera. Boston Venue, The Channel Story was conceived and created by Harry Boris. Executive producer, David Ginsberg. Produced by Chachi LaPrette. Written by Harry Boris. Contributing writers, David Ginsberg. Edited by Christopher O'Keefe and Jennifer C. Boris. Recording engineer, Tori Lamb. Audio production by Dan Tebow. Graphic designer, Lisa St. John Bennett. I'm your narrator, John Laurenti. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends to check us out on thechannelstory.com or on Facebook at Boston Venue, The Channel Podcast. Leave your comments and share your stories. Boston Venue, The Channel Story has been nominated by the Boston Music Awards 2019 for Music Podcast of the Year. Be sure to cast your vote and don't forget to subscribe. If you like the show, leave a review. We really appreciate it.